वेलकम टू सिंट टॉक The Sintalkers around the table today discuss the attempts to team. We'll think about teams, teaming, and collaborations in various contexts. Our teams persons, how our payoffs improved, when are mavericks effective, what is the nature of order within teams, how is cost-benefit analysis performed. can shared goals only be attempted via teams when do individual and collective goals diverge how do groups change the risk appetite how do sporting clubs acquire their personality how much does context structure and genetics matter what is the difference between practice and rehearsal and which domains would teams survive in in the very long run We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Professor Daniel Campos, he teaches and writes philosophy at the City University of New York. He is from Costa Rica. Professor Bino Paul, he thinks of himself as a data evangelist. His work is largely in the area of economic sociology. He is from Tisin, Mumbai. And Professor Milan Watwe. He is a science teacher and an evolutionary biologist who is interested in anything that has evolved. He is currently at Dina Nath Mangeshkar Hospital at Pune. Um, so Daniel, why don't we set the ball rolling with you? Literally, the ball rolling because okay. the favorite <laughs> sport, good. maybe football or anything else. Um, maybe we could we could pick any instance any example that comes to mind and you've thought about this for a bit um what are teams how do you think of teams as a philosopher as 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 a philosophically philosophically minded person um how is it different from a person is it almost a person what is a team how are sporting teams different and how is that a helpful place to start to think about this whole question of teaming that we are here to think about today Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, for me, thinking about teams came primarily from my experience of playing in sporting teams. So that's how I first became interested in it. Uh, usually, I, I'm interested in how very human beings ex- experience or live through various kinds of practices or activities. So this one was of interest to me. So the origin of my thinking of teams comes from that kind of um, background of playing in sports teams, especially in football or soccer teams. While I was growing up in Costa Rica, and then as a university and graduate student in the U.S. and so on, I th- came to think of teams because of the influence of the philosophy of Charles Peirce, the American pragmatist, as corporate personalities or corporate persons meaning you mean corporeal almost having a body almost and in the sense also that they are um, uh not just an aggregation of parts of the individuals who make up the team but they are larger than the whole they're actually a kind of collective or corporate person so i think 
also because of the influence of pers of persons as a coordination of affects of sentiments, emotions, uh, feelings. So there's something continuous about them. There's some kind of continuity running through the entire team. You mean it in that sense? Yeah. So there is a so when players in this case come to form a team, and if they are successful in forming the team, they create a larger person. Mm. And there are three layers of coordination of the individuals uh, that then form this larger team. One is affective, is what I was saying. As sentiments, feelings, emotions. The other one is a coordination of energies, of the actual efforts that are involved. So you're able to draw and give energies to each other in that sense? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and apply your energies, your organic um, energies towards the goals that the team is pursuing. And then the third layer is more, I would say, intellectual it's, uh, it, or conceptual. It's a coordination of uh, in terms of the purposes that are being pursued, and there has to be a sort of uh, conscious, deliberate uh, notion and commitment to what the team is doing. What kind of tailors? Yeah. So I think of teams as a coordinate person in this sense. Uh, and my coming to think of it was first experiential and then philosophically through through this um this view of pers uh, uh, of personality, uh, of corporate personality as a coordination of these three layers of... So with this framework in place, um, mm -hmm. why do some teams come together and some teams don't? Uh, why does it work sometimes and why does it not work at times? I think there might be several reasons. The first one that comes to mind is uh, disagreement about goals or... So there isn't confusion, a common purpose. Confusion about what is uh, the goal or the objective of coming, of coordinating efforts, uh, energy, sentiments, and so on. So it might be a confused or unclear or um, disparate objective. What philosophers sometimes call telos uh, right. from the Greek uh, uh, for purpose or end. Um, Some so, kind of common end that everybody is going after. Yeah. So I think that's the first reason that comes to mind. Uh, you know, of course, there could be this kind of agreement. But where does that come from? Does that does that pre-exist the formation of the team, the existence of the team, the coming together of the team? Of course, once the team is in place, then it renews, then there's recruitment, people come and go. Um, but do people come? I, I'm sure there are cases and subcases of all kinds, but does one need to pre-exist the other? I think personally that it's created in the process. Of coming together. Yeah, and it's created communally. So the the team members contribute their visions, their conjectures, their hunches about what to do, how to do it. But it's a communal effort. It's an effort of all the members. They might be leaders, uh, there might be doers, <laughs> uh, there might be different roles within this communal effort, but I think it's, it, it, at any rate, the, the common personality of the team and the goals that it pursues are created in the process. They're not pre-existent. Uh, they 
arise with the practice. And how do you think of this, Bino? Is there, and again, obviously one can think of this uh, mode of teaming in many, very many different contexts. Uh, maybe we think of all kinds of social formations, economic formations, there's the firm, company, and so on and so forth. Um, how much of what Daniel has said uh, resonates with you? And, um, you know, having a sporting goal is a little bit different from having an economic goal and so on. And of course, in some ways, there are parts that overlap, but... Uh, how do you think of this? Uh, I would say team is a synergetic a mechanism in the sense it's a collective, human collective, varying in scale. So it's primarily for execution? Oh, yeah. So one level, it's a very minute uh, team consisting of two people, three people for sporting. Another level of teaming is something like for a common purpose, people work towards uh, for example, solidarity of workers. There is a common ideology shared by people. Of course, it's not that easy to internalize or understand. Even then, it works. <laughs> so, yeah. complex form of organizations of human collective, one end. The other end, not so complex. Even then, uh, there are skills needed to coordinate people. So, I guess it's a very interesting uh, sphere, uh, varying in scale. So, I would like to uh, recollect some of the thought processes uh, articulated by economists like uh, Oliver uh, Williamson, O.E. Williamson, who uh, really theorized, conceptualized how uh, human collectivity varies according to the scale. The scale, so the scale, scale depends scale. to the whole thing. So one, one end of the sphere is, uh, one spectrum is instantaneous happening, instantaneous variations. For example, uh, fact, production in the factory. Uh, maybe it's an enforced uh, cooperation. Still people work as a team uh, with some precision in mind. Uh, maybe fault is likely as a rare event. Another level, uh, what he conceptualized was interestingly is governance. Hmm. Maybe variation is not that quick. Uh, maybe it requires a little more time to vary. So when you say governance, you mean that it's not spontaneous. There is it's not kind of an order that you need to fit into. Yeah, yeah, precisely that. For example, decision-making processes with some residual pass. Uh, as uncertainty raises, maybe one has to find out-of-box solutions which won't uh, flout any uh, established norms. Then the third level is a little tricky. That is to do with property rights or statutes, constitution. Very often it won't change because it's very expensive to alter it. The end of the spectrum, which countries like India face or any part of the world face, something like racial inequality or casteism, uh, which require people to change their way of organizing, so social order, which is hard to change. It goes to the... Things like deeply held beliefs and so on. So. Yeah, precisely. So that's a very interesting uh, space to really uh, visualize, envisage uh, emergent order vis-a-vis -vis design systems. So the, the notion of leadership is different in all of these situations and contexts, right? I mean, there is, um, do, do, do these different modes and frameworks need a leader necessarily? <laughs> That's a very interesting question. Because, you know, when, when Daniel speaks about coordination and we'll go to Milan and think about this, <laughs> I mean, sometimes 
there is goal orientation without an obvious explicit leader um how, how does one think of that it's very interesting because if we have one scale for example instantaneous operational changes you need a disciplinarian on whom we don't have any complaints because <laughs> routine is set we have to follow the set pattern whereas when it comes to social inequities the other end of the spectrum yeah. maybe we have to live with bit of chaos kind of spontaneous ordering evolved ordering i'm sure milind may have more insights about it dude is it is it and i know you're an economist and it's probably better post to milind but do teams end up self ordering over time do things like hierarchy leadership uh, essentially self ordering does it emerge i guess uh, possible not possible both Uh, for example if interactions are organized in a uh, centralized manner what we see in enforced hierarchies mm-hmm. in some organizations or uh, in many human teams and ventures maybe power gets concentrated then so but then it's vulnerable to systematic attacks right uh, i guess physics uh, like barabasi has worked on it i think one, one classic article is depending sci- on the network yeah so. scientific american i think yeah. uh, it's it's a kind of abstraction of what he has done but the on the contrary another uh, extreme is random networks uh, while maintaining retaining some connects there's a propensity to self order but it doesn't have very heavy nodes it's not like you kill a node and the whole network is killed precisely precisely but but then random uh, networks are supposedly more uh, i'm not saying uh, robust but more resilient and adaptive right maybe they work on common themes right i think right. this dearth of common themes which unite people right hmm. i think uh, milan bino has touched upon this notion of adaptation right and, and obviously teams exist in the world now whether they are biological ecological sporting teams firms labor unions whatever you have to contend with extraneous factors um thinking of it in your context and things you're familiar with yeah um, i agree that teams exist uh, right from bacteria right okay. so bacteria have to team up and there are so many examples where they coordinate for things that a single cell cannot do they can do only in groups so i think this is the first thing that there are a number of things which a single individual cannot do and teaming up is essential yeah it's not voluntary you have to do, you have to team yes up. yes so you're okay. a, you're a, so, you're a group species yeah so some tasks have to be done in a group okay so that is the very first very fundamental reason why there would be teaming up but this is not sufficient because even in a cooperative act the individual cost benefits might be at conflict with the teams cost benefits yeah. or the collective cost benefits even for right? bacteria even for bacteria <laughs> okay so for example um bacteria secrete enzymes mm-hmm. to degrade something like cellulose which is outside the cell mm-hmm. the enzyme degrades the things into smaller compounds which they can take in right right now if other cells are producing the enzyme I can be happy not producing the enzyme because is, the work is being done so I can save my cost and get the same benefit there can be propensity to cheat right okay and cheating real examples of cheating begin right from bacteria <laughs> and this has so been very well so we can feel studied. good about ourselves right? daniel yes. please make note human beings are okay <laughs> okay <Yeah. laughs> yes yeah. but just as cheating has evolved mm-hmm. 
means to arrest cheating or the mechanisms have evolved mechanisms have also evolved right so everything ultimately boils down to cost benefit optimum of an individual versus cost benefit optimum of the group so let's right? stay on that so, milan so uh, what has evolved to arrest cheating in in bacterial colonies for example okay so uh, that is a complex dynamics mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so bacteria live in groups and they might do some function on which everyone gains but there can be cheaters there now what happens is this group of bacteria have to disperse sometime right when they disperse then they are individuals or they are in small groups so individual cheaters perish when they don't have others around right, right. so at times you are in a group at times you are isolated so when you are isolated the cheaters perish when you you are in a group the cheaters do better so is this process of isolation random because that's the only the situation the process of isolation see the process of isolation has evolved a number of times number one for dispersal it is it is inevitable that you disperse everywhere because it's a matter of chance who will end up in a favorable environment yeah right so for dispersal they are mostly individuals then as the function begins they again uh, multiply and do it collectively right but again they have to disperse so through this dynamics what ultimately happens is the cooperative act survives along with a few cheaters okay so yeah. cheaters survive but the cheaters do not drive the cooperative act to extinction it's not like millions of years of evolution have taken away cheaters from bacteria even even che- they, they still exist cheaters still exist yeah. and cooperators also exist yeah. they coexist because of a complex dynamics of the community that uh, that keeps on happening all the time Right. right so and the basic principles of cooperation have sustained even up to humans okay so the terms of cost benefits have changed for bacteria it is only in terms of genetics the cost benefits are counted in humans there are certain other currencies which have come up right the currency in terms of uh, monetary gain which everyone understands but there are cur- currencies in terms of social position social gain Norms. pleasure yeah. right okay so so the currencies have changed but the basic cost benefit the principle of cost benefit optimization remains the same yeah and human cooperation has evolved under certain contexts for example uh, our ancestors were hunter gatherers right so when did we need the need teamwork maximum right at the time of hunting because humans are not the strongest and most competent animals they need teamwork to hunt right you want in pack they also need teamwork to protect yourself from someone else now both these acts are against someone either you are attacking or you are defending but there is an there is an enemy right so what happens is even in today when you have to fight or even play against someone team spirit builds up does that That's- resonate with you daniel because you know there are sports in particular is a very interesting context because you always have an adversary you have mm-hmm. somebody you you play with there is you know, even if even if it's playful and gamified there is an adversary at work um is that one of the reasons why team spirit is usually higher better whatever one can pick one's word in sporting contexts yeah i think both could be uh, animating reasons for sp- for teams to emerge and to be successful uh there can be the competitive drive or the competitive spirit like in in the case of sports you could have a team that is very focused on winning 
uh, obviously professional sports of any kind uh, or or Olympic, you know, high level uh, elite sport has that sort of emphasis on competing in order to win. Right. It's very outcome oriented. Yes. I think more generally in terms of human experience, which is what interests me, I'm mm-hmm. not so interested in sports as uh, the experience of the elite athlete, but um, I tend to be more interested in sports or playfulness as human experience of the ordinary person. I think is richer um, as a human value and as part of a good life to play for joy or to play for uh, fun, to play... Uh, out of a spirit of spontaneity, playfulness, risk-taking, um, willingness to take these a risk are, and fail. These are individual experiences, uh, phenomenologically. Uh, oh, but what I mean is that you could have teams that are more oriented towards, let's just have fun. Even if we lose, let's have fun. Let's let's play joyfully. Uh, so both resonate. You could have... You could have uh, teams could emerge... With, uh, for competition or for the joy of cooperation. Um, Is there a trade-off or a tension between this freedom and order? I, I think it's always a tension, and so perhaps successful teams learn how to find a balance or an equilibrium within that tension. Uh, but there is always the tension of too much spontaneity, too much free flow, at the cost of being effective or too much focus on order, effectiveness, winning. Which might make it too rigid. So that comes in the way of uh, individual experience. Yes. So to me, probably the balance is what is hard to find. It seems like maybe bacteria in terms of evolution have found a a way to, to balance it. Um, but in the context of bacteria, Melin, this whatever these cooperative modes and acts are, they're entirely genetic, right? Yes, but... When uh, are, are individual... Yeah, yeah. Although bacteria- they are entirely genetic, they are context-dependent. So with the same hmm. genetics, they can behave differently in different contexts, hmm. right? So genetics has given them the flexibility. Hmm. So it's not hardwired behavior. It's flexible, okay? But still it is genetics-based. Hmm. I, I, that makes me think of something um, that I noted when Bino was speaking first. He said that to him, teams are, teams are synergetic mechanisms. It just made me think of the difference between, at least philosophically, between mechanism and organism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, in the large swath of, of Western philosophy, at least, um, a major switch came in the at the onset of the modern era when the old view of the universe and of everything in the universe as organism switched to mechanism the universe became mechanism and how everything. do you distinguish the two who do you have in mind so the so Descartes for example Aristotle thinks of the universe as a large organism where everything in it from the planets to the stars to the animals to the rocks play a function, an organic function within that large whole, which is the universe, and that whole is an organism. Uh, Whereas 
Descartes, among others, came to think of the universe as a mechanism. The laws of the universe... Where you could isolate some subpart and it operates within itself. You exactly. It in that sense. And the laws are set from the start and they always they will always operate mechanically. Uh, so I, I just noted when Bino was first speaking that I would think of teams as synergetic organisms more than mechanisms in the sense that uh, not all the dynamics are Intrinsic. established inside yeah, and uh, and established a priori or ahead of the uh, ahead of the experiences but maybe so you mean the environment and the context as Melinda has been saying acts on it in some shape or form yeah and there's room for flexibility I like the word that Melinda is using of there's room for flexibility uh, within that uh, yeah. process so, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, this, uh, you mentioned organisms uh, versus mechanism. This has been a very big debate in evolution uh, with the uh, with the selfie gene concept versus uh, group selection concept and so on. And it's still uh, ongoing. Okay, so we don't have an end result of that debate. Where do you but, rely on that? Uh, well, what's ra- your instinct? Yeah, so, so, so there is a basic element which is genetic. Right. So ultimately, genes are passed on to the next generation, and that is how uh, evolution takes place. Right. But the interest of genes can, and interest of genes and interest of an organism are pretty much the same, but there can be conflicts. Interest of an, an individual, interest of a group can pretty much be the same, but at times there are conflicts. Right. So the, so the dynamics of where it they are congruent and where they are divergent is ultimately decides the outcome. And what Daniel says the as a mechanism, I would see it as an outcome, outcome of this dynamics. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, the earth itself has several uh, self-controlling, self-regulating cycles, has several negative feedback cycles by which the temperature is more or less constant, rainfall is more or less constant. So there are so many things, but they are not sort of uh, centrally organized. They are outcome of both physical as biological process processes happening there. Okay, And natural selection has been acting not only on organisms, even on physical systems. Correct. <laughs> okay, because something that does not uh, reach stability would ultimately perish. Yeah. Okay, so stability out of some feedback mechanisms or some um, self-regulating mechanisms makes a system stable. Yeah. And that can be an outcome of individual optimization. Okay, and wherever there is some convergence between individual optimization and the system goals, it be- it becomes a stable system. And when they diverge too much, it the system itself collapses. Where are you on this, Bino? I think you touched upon this a little bit when you spoke last, but uh, how autonomous are, are are teams in different contexts, at least in the economic context that you would be more familiar with? Does it necessarily need a top-down regulation, regulator? Because that's in a way what uh, Milinth is alluding to. Uh, very relevant, actually, in the contemporary world, because one not so easy to compromising aspect is constitutional liberty, which make people... Uh, autonomous to an extent. But then uh, once it's compromised, of course, it may uh, enhance efficiency at some level, maybe in a production unit, 
even without constitutional liberty, efficiency can be maximized, optimized. But then when it comes to uh, other scales, for example, governance or property rights, or let it be uh, mitigation of complex social inequities, constitutional liberties can't be compromised. But then uh, that's not there in natural world everywhere. I mean, something like constitutional liberty, which people like Adam Smith <laughs> speaks about. Uh, ha wearing dirty linen or uh, good linen, it should not impact you. Uh, evaluation of people on you should not be swayed by what you wear mm. because that's what constitution guarantees. Mm. So that's uh, one reason why I'm saying constitutional liberty matters a lot because it seems to generate a common purpose for people. So amidst uh, chaos of views and opinions, still it may generate a common purpose of uh, respecting each other, dignity, human dignity, or dignity to each other. That really matters. So scale to scale, under conscientization of values such as dignity or uh, constitutional liberty varies. But the moment you think of a team of any kind, all team members are not equal, right? Would you agree? Agree, I agree. But uh, let's come to this. Uh, let's think of a football uh, match or a sporting, as Daniel was commenting on, the context. Even there, fairness as an issue exists. Uh, as teams go up in uh, the higher order, uh, quarterfinal or so, so semi-final, See, there was a controversial match, right, in one of the World Cups. Maradona's hand of God. divine hand, or <laughs> invisible or visible hand, whatever. So such fairness issues ever exist, isn't it? Are, are all team members equal? No, I don't think so. That would make it... Does it come in the way of uh, the creative, expressive, spontaneous kind of uh, issues that you were speaking about a little while ago? Yeah, so I guess I should say they're equal in dignity, they're equal in uh, yeah. in worth, but but not in function, yeah. not in role. Um, I think some might be more creative, risk takers, mavericks. Um, um, others might be more uh, disciplined. You know, let's take care of the basics. Let's keep order. Uh, let's create room so that the creatives can take risks, you know. Uh, so I, I think that there, there can be different functions, but that's why the thought that is emerging for me now is this about organism, that in an organism, not all parts, not all, not all members play the same function. Exactly. But they But that doesn't necessarily together. mean that one is unequal compared to the other. Yes. Not unequal in importance or dignity, but perhaps in function, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, perhaps uh, to an extent what appears as uh, differences in abilities or achievements may come from uh, collective knowledge, asset knowledge. Classic cases when uh, Cameroon was playing uh, uh, 1990 World Cup, <laughs> Roger Milla uh, emerged as top scorer uh, within Cameroon. Not because he was a star player, but I guess... He adapted to conditions well because his uh, knowledge, collective knowledge, seemed to have helped. I think one of the classic goals he scored was against Colombia. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Higuita yeah, was the that. goalkeeper. So somehow Higuita had the practice of advancing forward. 
coming up, although he's a goalkeeper. And uh, I think uh, Roger Miller was smart enough to corn him and score the goal. Yeah, I remember that. That's in the match. <laughs> <laughs> but however, I think uh, the dignity bestowed to Higuita always exists. Right. He invented scorpion kick. Right. And the new ways of saving the ball, etc. So that innovation <laughs> is never forgotten. Yeah. But at the same time, uh, it's very unfortunate. Pe- players like Escobar, who scored the self-call, yeah. were shot dead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that was the cost he had to pay. Mm. So, so I think that's an interesting time to segue to the broader context in which these things sit, right? Um, and there are fans, there are owners, there are coaches... There are players who are in and out. Um, mm-hmm. And the more professional it gets, there is more at stake. Uh, yes, Mr. Yeah. yeah, I would say that uh, the perspective of whatever, the fans, the general public, the coaches, the control board, matters a lot. So, uh, for example, uh, when, when, when I was uh, young, when I was in school, the discussion about cricket that time and the discussion about cricket today had changed substantially. Mm-hmm. Right? That time, individual records being talked about more often. Who took most wickets, who made most centuries and so on. Okay. Today, if you look at, let us say Dhoni uh, comes at fifth or sixth position because he's a good finisher. right? But if he came on second or third position, his individual record would have improved much more. Right. But in today's cricket discussion, we are talking more about the, the how many times we win rather yeah. than individual records, right? Yeah. So the perception of fans has also changed. And that matters a lot. In fact, that changes the cost benefits of individuals as well as the team. Does that change the team itself? The, the fan perspective or? Yeah, I mean, this broader context. I think when... And uh, at that point, teams have become also institutions. That's one way to put it, right? Mm. So it's one thing to have um, a team of your classmates or a team Amateurs, of your neighbors yeah. and, yeah. you know, enter the local tournament and win or lose. But, you know, the fans are maybe the mothers or the girlfriends or the boyfriends or the, <laughs> the fathers or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's different when it has become an institution with with fans, you know, within a federation. Um, somewhat, and I somewhat formally, uh, from a philosophical lens, uh, is an amateur team very different from a professional team? I think so. Uh, first, the institutionalization is important, so institutions are more complex. There are more perspectives, more interests to coordinate. Uh, and as institutions, professional institutions with fans, Fans' expectations matter a lot. Um, one example to make it very concrete has been, for example, in Brazilian soccer, there's always been this debate about whether Brazil, whether it's enough to win or you have to win with beauty and grace and uh, joyful sort of forward attacking. There's a qualitative uh, side to it. So the yeah. quality of how quality. you win matters. And, you know, there are even some uh, views that, are sometimes labeled romantic, if that's the case, I'm a romantic, <laughs> that it's better to lose playing beautifully than to win an ugly game. Right. Uh, and so there, the fans 
and the tradition of the institution or the tradition of the practice matters. It becomes part of what is uh, what it means to practice well. Um, in this case, the sport. Uh, so, and when you say practice, it's almost it's almost like an like an art form. It's something something like that. Yeah, I mean, a practice as a sort of sustained effort that has sustained over time and that it has standards to evaluate it. So that's a very loose definition of practice, but there are standards to evaluate it. Okay, we won the tournament, but we played horribly. That might not satisfy any, uh, the fans or the, or the former players. The, so the institution might, uh, might be in disagreement about so, so Milind, when when you speak of things like cost benefit analysis, it sounds quite mathematical. Um, are there in the animal world, plant world, elsewhere? Is there a way in which this quality dimension, qualitative dimension, is there a way in which that gets incorporated at all? Uh, well, can can um, you can you think of instances, examples, results, laws, whatever comes to mind? Okay, so so um, from biological point of view. This quality is difficult to define, right? Because what matters ultimately in biology is the survival, yeah. the genetic success, yeah. okay, is what matters. But there can be conflict between no short-term success, no, no, short-term success and long-term success, mm -hmm. right? Which is quite uh, parallel to what you are saying, whether you played well or whether you won this time, right? If you played well, it means that your chances of winning in future are better. Right. So, rather than this win, your overall performance matters, right? There are parallels in animal world. Such as what? Okay, so, um, in animal conflicts, for example, right? Uh, animal conflicts are extremely complex, much more complex than what we think, right? And there are certain short-term gains, mm -hmm. right? Such as two, uh, say, say in, in, in gore, two males fight. Now, you have so many options. You fight till death, okay? Or you take a judgment and maybe retreat for the time being, but you can improve and come back. Right. Right? So there are different... So that's a strategic retreat. Right. So there are different options available. And so a short-term win versus a lifetime better achievements, okay, is something that the animals can choose from. And right? is that also happening at the level of individuals versus species? Uh, no, this is a conflict between short-term versus long-term. Of the individual uh, of itself. Of the individual itself. Is there a similar dynamic for individuals versus species where the individuals might be sacrificed for the long-term success of the species? No. I mean, um, okay, so, so that is quite complex. And hmm. that has been a long-term debate in evolution. If there is a conflict between what is good for an individual versus what is good for a species... Okay, what ultimately evolves. Yes. So, in the 1970s, people sort of, uh, they refuted the group selection argument. They refuted that whatever is good for the species evolves. And the consensus, sort of consensus was that, no, no, what is good for an individual is the only thing that evolves. Later on, today, we know that both these naive arguments are not true. The realities are more complex. Mm -hmm. So, there is a complex dynamics between what is good for an individual and what is good for the group. And the dynamics depends on so many subtleties, such as whether the benefits multiply or add. If they right. add, the mathematics is different. Right. If they multiply, the mathematics is different. But it is nonlinear. 
Yes, right. So depending upon that, the ultimate outcome is decided. Where is where are these qualitative aspects in in case of uh, social economic orderings? Uh, I, I have a good example first from agriculture. Mm-hmm. Then moving out to social social economy, sure. have we discussed? I uh, had a discussion with Melinda on that. Yes. Classic cases in a homestead farm, integrated farming system. Uh, there are two alternatives. One is live fencing. Uh, in the sense, two properties are separated, so differentiated by a fencing, which is full of life, food chain in it. Maybe a serpent, owl, to all other creatures. The whole ladder there. Right. Then the second alternative is to have a, a erect a stone wall, right. which would reduce your damage of right. foraying cattle, cattle foraying into your farm, etc. However, you can secure your property rights. Now, from the point of view of uh, some temporal, finite temporal length, perhaps that stone wall would secure you better property rights. It's more benefit-oriented. It would fetch you more benefit compared to the cost. Whereas from the point of view of soil health, uh, diversity in it, uh, how uh, how long the system would sustain, sustainability point of view or intergenerational, multiple generational point of view, life fencing matters. So in usual uh, cost-benefit analytics, the kind of mathematics being applied is very, very rudimentary in nature. Right. Because uh, as so this discount- rudimentary economics would prefer a stone wall. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. The classic case is discount rates. Right. Because it's it's it, it's going to generate a polynomial. Yeah. And you would get uh, different equilibrium and different solutions. Yeah. So I guess uh, it really matters. Uh, do you have whether you have dynamic time frame and corresponding uh, discounting or something else? Second, coming to socioeconomic sphere, the good examples come from skilling. Mm. I think uh, people have been uh, powering money on uh, skilled people. Mm. Last five, six, seven, eight years, uh, sta- heads of sure. the state, bureaucrats were saying, oh, they were watching on this proposition, skill people, skill people. But then if they don't get job, yeah. where do they go? So it's a classic case because it's for skill, turnaround time is easy. You put money, people get skilled. But skilling with job is not that easy proposition. Because industry uh, training linkage has to be built. Classic case is that. So now that is turning out to be a biggest social problem. Because skilling was happening, but corresponding uh, proportionate number of jobs were not created. So that non-linearity, because uh, that non-linearity was perhaps not seen when the policy was framed. So but, where are you on this formal and formal question, Bino? Because uh, a lot of these things kind of presuppose this that things can only be solved via formal structures, mechanisms, and so on. But, you know, you know better than me that there is such a thing as an informal world out there, and there are all sorts of informal ways in which collaborations and so on happen. Uh, now, why why doesn't that take the place of solving problems of this sort uh, rather successfully? Uh, that's very close to uh, what Milint was saying. Uh, I would like to stress that point. Where the jobs are located, jobs are located in the informal sector, where wage is very low. Whereas for a skilled person, that's not a lucrative option. So uh, if you if you see the recent uh, sample survey, uh, periodic labor force, unemployment rate is lowest for not literate people, 
as education level goes up employment rate unemployment rate <laughs> goes up but even then people go for education one reason is probability or propensity to get absorbed in decent job is much higher with uh, higher education so the probability adjusted payoffs are still better yeah 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 so they take risk for that but the that's not the issue issue is government was uh, pinning their hopes on linearity of demography Hmm. people were saying there's so much enormity of young population in india hmm. but then would they get job uh, that was not addressed which which was a non linear process because to get job there should have been symbiotic linkage between education institutions and industry right but industry was working like a uh, it was working as a value chain uh, in the sense hazardous part of it production part was pushed to the home work work is getting done at home while the marketing and branding gets done by firms right but they don't need people yeah. to do that right? yeah max to max or maximum who whom they need is high end business graduates yeah who can strategize and sell yeah whereas large mass are not needed yeah, yeah. so that's a non linearity it's a classic case so the so the place where a lot of the work happens is relatively low value addition in the finer scheme of things but yes precisely precisely that, i think all, all over the world if you see a world investment survey eight, nearly eight, 85% of uh, production or trade is happening through value chains now i want to go back to the question that both daniel and willen have touched upon in their own ways of you know this again this quality point right and let's say some kind of a drive for excellence quality and so on how does that uh, i'm still not able to put a finger on that I mean, so the moment you have formal structures firms and so on do they somehow come in the way of realization of excellence and so on and i don't know maybe the same question can be asked in 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 in, in sporting kind of context and even otherwise daniel that's where start. i guess collectives and ideologies play a role Mm. Uh, you can see the recent literature there's a uh, there's an interesting book by i uh, forgot his name precariat that's the title of the book precariat uh, precariat yeah, yeah. Uh, which talks about uh, nature of precarity increasing precarity at work so what's really happening is seeing this sensing it people have been wanting more decency in the value chains so they ask are children involved in the work do people get fair wage what about gender parity so one side uh, as thomas piketty uh, wrote in his book inequality has been growing the other side people uh, were combating these questions and uh, people i don't know how many respond to it but there, there are collectives uh, which are addressing it international labor organization recent discourses and conventions are on this how to make human work more decent for which there are collectives and teams that's a classic case collectives with common purpose uh, are these i think the question is whether these are necessarily informal whether these are they're not relatively formal for example if you go to ilo international labor organization they kept all the data <laughs> and all, all the meetings are formal and they also give the list of ratification which country has ratified for example classic case i can give you is domestic made there are conventions with respect to domestic maids we know domestic maids do very very essential job for people but some countries haven't ratified interesting mm-hmm. so it's very formal but people choose to ignore it what about the practice versus rehearsal daniel mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's um, distinction, I should say, uh, in the realm of philosophy of sport that was brought up by a Canadian philosopher, Bernard Suits, uh, who's written some very important works on games and then on sports. Uh, the, his most classic work is uh, The Grasshopper, which is about games in, in human life. Uh, but in the context of philosophy of sport, he's written that some sports you practice for, meaning that the nature of the competition... Um, it's not just cannot, going and reproducing what you've already done. Exactly. You, so you can't anticipate what will happen because you will you know, play games or sports like soccer or volleyball or basketball or cricket. You don't know exactly what the opponent will do and you can't, you know, uh, field conditions, etc., And so for those types of sports, you Very practice. Very different from gymnastics or something. Yeah. You, you, whereas, you go and do your routine. Exactly. For others, like gymnastics, um, diving, you know, uh, you rehearse. Um, pra game Sports for which you practice tend to be, you, you tend to have a referee, whereas Games for uh, sports for which you rehearse tend to have judges, you know, who judge the complexity and the perfection and the performance of the rehearsed uh, routine. So it was brought up by Bernard Seuss. The reason it's, it's it interested me. It's, it's a beautiful distinction. Yeah, yeah, I found it very useful, very important. And f the reason it interested me was to think about forms of creativity In team, uh, in, in team practices or team rehearsals. So what interested me is if you're rehearsing as a team, say uh, uh, some forms of uh, gymnastics or coordinate diving, what forms of creativity are involved there? Because most of the creativity will happen at the time of creating or, you know, the, the routine. Whereas in sports for which you practice, um, the sort of creativity, the most relevant sort of creativity happens in the unscripted competition. Yeah. And so I was Circumstances, your skills take over, something happens. Exactly. Some of it may be chance. So, so, yeah, even like chance, you know, un unexpected events like wet field, uh, you know, wind you know, wind suddenly picks up uh, and you have it against you, etc. So I'm, I'm, I was interested in creativity. Uh, I've written mostly about creativity, team creativity or individual creativity within teams in sports for which you practice. And so what I tried, what I think are some of the elements is that in practicing you are You are uh, cultivating habits, you know, ha uh, yeah. how you play, skills, habits, also uh, agreeing on tactics. Yeah. And you have this as, a, as your background, individual skills, tactic, uh, skills, habits, and collective tactics that you bring to the moment of competition or of play. And there... You need the flexibility, the adaptability, the spontaneity to apply to your habits, you know, your incorporated uh, abilities 
This is this is wonderful. Is there any parallel to this in 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 your world, Melinda? Because this distinction between routinized situations versus situations where you necessarily have to improvise. Obviously, you bring your skills to the table. Yeah. In some shape, and now in your context, you bring your genetics, this, that, but whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah. So obviously, both these kinds of skills are there, and both kinds of skills evolve. Okay. So, for example, um, adapting to heat or adapting to drought. Heat or drought are something which are not going to respond to you. Yeah. They are not going to change in response to your behavior. Whereas predator prey. the behavior depends upon what the other is doing and if you evolve something the other is going to counter evolve yes okay another strategy right so animals adapt in both the ways by comparable to practice as well as to reverse how are these two adaptations different um okay are so, they different in some some of yeah, very yeah. fundamental so, 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 so ways so for example for example uh, adaptation to altitude temperature and all is sort of a stabilizing selection mm-hmm. right they adapt they can adapt to a certain level and stay there whereas the predator prey evolution or host parasite evolution is is like an arms race if one develops a missile the other has to develop an anti missile yeah. and that is like a uh, what is it called a red queen effect right right you have to keep on running to stay in the same in place in the same place yeah and there is a difference between the two yeah but the overall skill level the overall overall amount of complexity uh, deployed the overall amount of energy that is expended all of that goes up ah uh, yes but in case it goes up until you reach sufficient uh, perception or or or, or, comp- uh, or uh, whatever mm, competentness and then you stay there you remain adapted in the other one you have to evolve continuously because the other your competitor not competitor in case your your adversary is also evolving continuously and the best example is and often this is not symmetric mm. okay so for example uh, bacteria evolve much faster than us simply because they have a short generation time yeah right so within my lifetime bacteria can change yeah right so yeah. the the same group of bacteria that were not able to attack my immune system when i was a child have evolved to attack me when i become 80 yeah right so so not only there is coevolutionary arms race the arms race is often asymmetric yeah and that depends on the evolution cycles and how fast it yes. might happen and yes. and other factors that depends upon what the two partners are what the basic biology of the two are do you think of the market itself as some kind of a team or uh, surely uh, but it again varies in scope one level what we see in the life spot market where there is no relationship evolving what dictates is simple value which is called wage or money uh, people come uh, say for example i want a plumber people person comes and goes away but the other end of the spectrum is relational which which what do you mean by that? relational in the sense which you see in a firm consulting firm for example uh people are called partners uh, where person is given more residual powers and some uh, time to work on skills and produce results so many humans and teams don't get this opportunity of relational contracting uh many 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 human lives lives are around 
സ്പോട്ട് മാർക്കറ്റ് സോ ബട്ട് ദെൻ നെക്സ്റ്റ് ലെവൽ ക്വസ്റ്റ്യൻ ഈസ് ലിറ്റിൽ മോർ ഡൈനാമിക് വുഡ് പീപ്പിൾ ഇൻ ദി സ്പോട്ട് മാർക്കറ്റ് ഗെറ്റ് ഓപ്പർച്യൂണിറ്റി ടു പാർട്ടിസിപ്പേറ്റ് ഇൻ റിലേഷണൽ സിസ്റ്റംസ് എവർ നോട്ട് വെരി കൺവിൻസിങ് ആൻസേഴ്സ് മേ ബി ഇൻ സം കൺട്രീസ് ആൻഡ് സൊസൈറ്റീസ് ഇൻ മെനി കൺട്രീസ് ക്ലാസിക് കേസസ് ലാർജ് ട്രാൻസ്ലേഷൻ ജോഗ്രഫി ലൈക്ക് ഇന്ത്യ ഇഫ് യു സി ഇഫ് യു ആർ ബോൺ ടു എ കാഷൽ വർക്കേഴ്സ് ഫാമിലി ഓർ അഗ്രേറിയൻ ഫാമിലി പ്രൊബാബിലിറ്റീസ് മോസ്റ്റ് ലൈക്ലി യു എൻഡ് അപ്പ് ആസ് കാഷൽ വർക്കർ അഗെയിൻ ഇറ്റ്സ് ഓൾമോസ്റ്റ് എയ്റ്റി ഫൈവ് പെർസെൻറ്റ് വെറാസ് ഇഫ് യു ആർ ബോൺ ടു വെൽ പെയ്ഡ് ഫാമിലി ഓഫ് എ വെൽ പെയ്ഡ് സ്റ്റാഫ് who have been in uh, social security entitled jobs children of shoots would also get the more or less same job so it's called lock in i think biologists sociologists were talking about it philosophers in anyway, the question lock-in. then yeah. is that who do you end up teaming up with right i mean why why is why does this lock in exist oh yeah i'm coming to that so we, if lock ins are are not broken then why? Uh, then you get monotonous teams again and again yeah which won't produce interesting results yeah but sociologists were uh, really working on issues such as strength of weak ties uh, would 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 you mean granovator yeah yeah, yeah granovator classic yeah. case yeah would we get a, a surprise uh, you know person from unprecedented backgrounds joining you and working towards i think in many societies uh, that really doesn't exist so the same should happen in sports i know you're not a sports historian and i don't want to treat you as such daniel but i think this case of the weak remaining weak the excluded remaining excluded and so on this lock in um so in context of sporting clubs and so on where there are outliers who come in and succeed in tournaments and do really well over time do you have a sense or intuition for why they're able to break this rut um well I know one one of, one of them is one of them is just um is uh, figuring out a new way of doing things uh, a way that others are not doing it uh so for example uh in in 74 uh, Holland had a uh, yeah in, in 1974 World Cup Holland did really well because they they were playing the same sport in a different uh, in way. a very different way by occupying moving as a as a unit of 11 and attacking uh very reduced spaces of the field and sort of um almost smothering the opposition in specific uh sectors of the field and th- this was so different and so uh innovative that other teams didn't know how to how to respond to this strategy so i think that that that's that's a big factor like just figuring out a new way something that is completely unexpected by others that hasn't been done and then so why uh, aren't it. individuals able to come together and form some kind of teams and create innovative moves and do things of this nature do you know what i mean now this is obviously an organized sport there's a tournament going on you have groups and you go and play so there is a, a context that is provided to you now the question is that somehow it looks like teams are able to do it but individuals aren't now why don't individuals organize themselves into teams and do something oh. now there are all kinds of modes that exist right uh, why should one fail individually when one can organize 
try and do something. Uh, I would Probably like, that's the background of the yeah, unions and I so on. I would like to cite a few ca- one case at least. Hmm. I think when India uh, became an independent republic, uh, the classic case was one, there was a company, a coffee house, which became orphan all of a sudden because the colonial uh, boss had gone. Sure. Uh, left uh, leaving peop- uh, workers in the lurch. Then a politician of those days, uh, opposition leader, uh, A.K. Gobalan, who was the CPM, Communist Party of India leader, he came forward to unite, to create solidarity, I mean, to bring <laughs> workers together. Sure. They formed Indian Coffee House. Sure. The company owned by workers, it's a cooperative. Sure. Still, it's going on. It's alive uh, in uh, across, across Kerala as well as some part of India. It's also in Mumbai. Do they serve Santa good coffee? Santa Cruz Electronic Processing Sound. Do they serve good coffee? Yeah. Okay. I, okay. J- no, just fine. opposite to my home, there is India, that's Indian Coffee House. I'm a regular visitor there. And long history. So recently I wrote a paper on it. So one of the core value systems that was driving Indian coffee was, was dignity. Dignity to each worker. It's owned by workers. And it's quite evident when you go there. So it's a new way of organizing yourself. There, there, isn't, there isn't a top-down owner, there's no shareholder. There are not many such models, but then they compete with private players. Why is it difficult for new models to come to be? I, I've been saying about it, because although uh, humans should have been driven by common purposes, but there's scarcity of common purposes. Is there scarcity of common <laughs> purposes? Um, well, so... Uh, when you, you would say extent, everything yeah, goes yeah, out yeah, to gene yeah, propagation. Yeah, to some extent, uh, yes, in certain contexts, there is scarcity of common purposes. But in several other contexts, common purpose does exist. But people change only under a restricted set of conditions. And we have, haven't completely understood the set of conditions. But I have a few examples where people suddenly change, sort of a turning point in an entire community or an entire village. Right. So there are two things. Number one, if... If they, the threat perception is very high. If the threat perception is very high, because then they then have to change. They have yeah. to change. But the problem is there should be an innovative new model that they can adapt. Right? Here the creativity is needed. And often, see, what is uh, what is very grossly lacking is a dialogue between scientists, researchers, uh, experts on the one, academicians on the one hand and common people on the other. Right? But I have at least one story which shows that this combination can work very well, which also shows another very important principle that uh, uh, is very relevant to today's theme, and that is, if we understand, now, the system is too complex, we have just started understanding, but we have uncovered at least a few principles. Can we design system now based on these principles? Mm -hmm. For example, can we design a system where individual cost benefit is not in conflict with the group cost benefit, mm. right? Then that system will be more stable. Right? Now I will give you. I, I'm working on three such examples. I will, but I will just. Uh, uh, so you mean huh? people don't have the incentive to free ride in a way? They cannot free ride. They cannot. The system free ride. is such that they just they they would be at a loss if they try to free ride. So what do you okay. have in mind? Right. So so I will describe one system. The problem is that. Uh, farmers close to uh, wild wildlife areas, protected areas, suffer loss due to wild animals. Now there is a law. The law says that the government should compensate because uh, the government's policy to protect these animals. So if they cause damage, the government should compensate. The law exists. But 
The problem is nobody knows how to estimate how much is the damage. There are no guidelines on how to estimate damage. Nobody can actually estimate the damage. So the law is not implemented. It's only on paper. Okay, farmers don't get the benefit. So then I have been talking with farmers in one area for the last 10 years and we collected data and we tried to estimate how much is the damage. The damage is tremendous. So 50 to 70% of the crop is gone. Sure. Okay, it's not 10, 15%. 50 to 70% of the crop is lost. Farmers are at a terrible state. Then, because I had some knowledge of behavioral economics and game theory, I could, uh, in, in conversation with the farmers, it's not entirely my uh, brainchild. Sure. In conversation of the farmers, we came up with a system. We said that let farmers themselves keep data and decide, come up with a good estimate of how much the loss is, right? And we said that we don't measure the loss the next day when wild boar has come, right? We wait till the end. Let us look at how much the harvest is. Ultimately, that is what matters to the... the. Now, who will record the harvest? We'll say the farmer himself record the harvest. It is self-reporting. And it will be endorsed by some neighboring farmers. So for the panchanama, no one from the government, no government officer is needed. Farmers will do the panchanama. Now, how do we ensure that the farmers will be honest? The simple thing is, the compensation payment is such that it is proportionate to average loss in that belt, but it is also proportionate to whatever you have produced. Okay, so if someone hasn't produced anything, he doesn't get anything. Now, you have to self-report. If you under-report your production, then you get less because you are getting paid proportion to what because you have Because you are reducing your own numerator, whatever right. gets multiplied. By. Right, right. And if you report more, the average deficit goes down. Right. So if you report more, you are at a loss. If you report less, you are at a loss. So honesty is the only... Honesty is the best policy. Is the best policy. Now, if you design systems in which... Integrity is the best policy. Honesty is the best policy. Cooperation is the best policy. The system would be more stable. So teams don't just need people. They also need mechanisms yes. to make them work. Yes. And, and these are essentially truth-seeking mechanisms. Right? Yes. In, in, in a way. In a way. So what's going to happen in the future? Why don't, we, why don't we try and think about that towards the end? What's the future? What kind of teams will survive? Why don't new kinds of team formations happen easily? What's going to happen, you know, next 400, 500 so, years I, I in guess, the very long run? Yeah, I guess now people are talking about a hybrid organizations, uh, something like collective uh, driven by common purpose, uh, at the same time not really confining to uh, goals like profit, nor to something like... Uh, not confining to goals like uh, Not confining to solitary goal like profit. Not, not, to, not confining only to profit. Only to profit. Sure. Uh, so there are some common uh, ideas. So hybrid emergence of hybrid organization with common purpose, uh, I think, seem to have been happening. But you said common purpose is rare. Uh, common purpose, for example, uh, classic cases, uh, something like phenomena like uh, climate change. Uh, people were, Something like that. Uh, yeah, something of that purpose. sort. Of course, creative industries. I think it's a buzzword. A classic case I can give you is from my vicinity, Cochin Binale, yes. uh, which is a successful enterprise, I guess. Congratulations to you <laughs> for being in the vicinity. L last four or five years, I think it has been running, Cochin Binale, which showcases human uh, creativity and it has been able to sustain. So it's a, com it's a classic case of common purpose and running relatively well. So 
I think uh, human would uh, human or collectives would adapt to such challenges by creating innovative organizations. What's the future, Daniel? How does one how do, what's the future of teaming teams collaborations? What does the philosopher in you say? What's your instinct? So today I spoke a lot about sporting teams, um, but what they have in common with other sorts of teams. One way to think about it is that they're problem-solving teams. Yeah. So, <clears throat> sport sporting teams try to devise strategies to to reach a goal that is, in some ways, artificial. You create the rules and the context, but it's not uh, it's not a matter of survival, or it's not a matter of of, of biological sur- or social survival. But they're problem-solving teams. But and they simulate so, that. They simulate those sorts of situations. Yeah. And so what I would think is that uh, as, um, if, as human history continues, at least in the case of humanity, problem-solving uh, will depend more and more on complex teams, on complex expertise, uh, whether it's in research teams, uh, policy-making teams, Uh, social planning teams, creative uh, collectives. Um, as complexity grows, um, teaming to solve complex problems will need to continue. And I think uh, I'm I'm an optimist in terms of the possibilities for r- rising up to challenges. So uh, so teams will grow in complexity. And is that bad news for individuality and individuals necessarily? N- not necessarily. So long as so long as um, individual creativity, individual insight, individual are harnessed and channeled, and, and, and whatever yes. dignity is accorded to it and rewarded or whatever in, in in some shape and form. Yeah, I think it will continue to be essential. What to... is an open question in your mind? What is a riddle? What is a puzzle? in regarding uh, the teams, future of teams. teams not just the future the notion of teams and teaming. oh the notion of teams um well one of them is what kinds of love or friendship or uh, 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 sentiment of this sort animate teams uh, when are these uh, these sentiments or uh, attitudes because helpful these, and when are not. <clears throat> because these are different from this bracket of common purpose or goals, right? Sentiments mm-hmm. and emotions and things of that sort. Yeah, sometimes you have, I mean, I have been in, in sporting teams and, and research teams where there was a lot of disagreement about the purpose or the goal, but there was a bond of friendship keeping the Which keeps the it spirit. animated, yeah. So... I think for me, as a research question, uh, that would be one that is important. What's the future, Milind? Where is yeah, this I, headed? I, I, I Maybe there are Daniel clues that, in yes, your world. Yes, in future, uh, policy making, implementation, management, research, everything is going to be team effort. Okay. But what we need at this stage is more and more understanding of human behavior which underlies all this. And the principles of human behavior, we have just started understanding. Human behavior is complex because there is underlying biological uh, instincts. But on top of this, you have cultural factors, you have education, you have law, you have ethics and, and, and so, so many social norms. And 
we have some understanding of all these elements, but what we need is to put all the elements together. Can and, they be put together? Yes, why not? The the reason, well, they and are what, together. What, what makes See, them? we have divided <laughs> them because of our academic structure. Right? Biology is taught in science faculty, sociology is taught in arts faculty, they never <laughs> talk to each other. Yeah, they're about While 10 kilometers in, in apart. In reality, they are integrated, they cannot be separated. So, so we have experts, we have uh, people studying these, but they need to come together and understand human behavior as a complex endeavor, a complex interaction of all these. And based on the foundation of human behavior, better teams can be built. So what are, what, just as nature of teams, um, morphologically, the structure of it, do you expect there to be different kinds of teams in the future? Are they close in animal, plant, ecological, biological world? Well, human systems are bound to be much more complex than um, And when you say complex, systems. what do you mean? By complex, which means uh, there are multiple layers of, uh, as I said, there are multiple uh, currencies in which we count things, right? There are multiple layers of, uh, of mechanisms. There are biological mechanisms, there are social mechanisms, there are educational mechanisms, right? All of them work uh, in harmony. So, no doubt, human systems are bound to be more complex, but the principles that we have learned from sociobiology will certainly be helpful in understanding humans as well. But they may not be sufficient. We have to add to that. What about individual pursuits? I mean, not everything will get subsumed by teams, right? Obviously, individual pursuits remain so. Individual pursuits, individual skills, individual creativity will remain important. The stories associated with, with it will change. See, earlier... We gave credit to Darwin as a person who, who, whatever, who talked about new principles, who discovered so many things. That kind of individual role models will not be there or would be there to a much lesser extent, right? Now there will be teams that will be recognized rather than individuals. But that does not mean that the importance of individuals will be gone. Individual pursuits remain, Daniel, and we'll end with that. Yes, I think so. Uh, in some ways, the the individual is irreducible, even uh, in the context of teams or societies or other sorts of cooperative uh, persona. Uh, the individuals remain irreducibly important. So, uh, I think there will be uh, there will be value to the individual in the long term. Terrific. Thank you. That's a good note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it, and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you.